Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Longtime listeners, you know the drill. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving members. Just search for the show's name. For those of you wondering why we re-recorded our little pre-show intro, we have one new item to discuss. Because some of you thought it would be a good idea, we went and very quietly opened a Patreon a little while back. You can find it online at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain, all one word. Now, don't get me wrong, this is nothing fancy. No rewards or anything at this point. Though, if a bunch of you sign up, we'll definitely build it into something more substantial, create some merch, use it as rewards for higher tiers. You know the drill. For now, it's just a sort of glorified tip jar, so those of you who are so inclined can send us a little scratch to defer the costs of our research materials and software, as well as some of the fancy recording equipment we've invested in over the years. You'll also help us ensure Dana Unicorn, Daniel Arizona, and Willem UFO can finally afford to stop eating cat food. I'm kidding. But if this thing really gets going, I will indeed be using some of the proceeds to buy each of them something nice. Since, you know, they do all this for free, just like I do. The deal is, you can now sign up to send us 3 or $5 a month, if you'd like. And we would, of course, appreciate it, but we also truly appreciate you simply for listening. So, like, no pressure. On the other hand, we do want to show our appreciation for the two fine folks who have already signed up, even though I've done fuck all to even tell you, my lovely audience, that this thing exists. So, with that in mind, and without revealing too many potentially compromising personal details about either, something clever, and Tim, y'all are the bee's knees. Thanks so much for your support. Any of the rest of y'all who sign up, I'll read your name or even better, your paranoid strain pseudonym, before an upcoming episode. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show. We're open to suggestions, criticisms, and recipes. Send them all to theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. In the closing decades of the 20th century, as the big numerical changeover loomed ever nearer, some authors got the idea to promote premillennialist ideas to an audience beyond those in the pews. 
Greer notes that one of the best-selling books of the 1970s was Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth, which basically repackaged the lectures about the end of the world that he had heard as a student at Dallas Theological Seminary and turned them into a book about Jesus coming back that practically flew off the shelves. And we have to admit, as Dr. Ehrman points out, Lindsay had a flair for interpretation. People who predict that this is indicating what will happen in our near future typically argue that the imagery is pointing forward to something in our own day. The ancient author, John, was seeing things that were going to happen in the 21st century, and like he, he didn't know what they were, so he described them as best he could. Let me give you an example. The flying locusts. This is a, interesting. These are nightmare locusts that this, this author sees. The fifth angel, the, the fifth angel is blowing his trumpet. He sees a star that falls from heaven to earth. The star is given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opens the shaft of the pit, and from the shaft, something like smoke comes out. Then from the smoke come locusts on the earth. These locusts are allowed to torture people for five months, but not to sting, but not to kill them. Their torture is like the torture of a scorpion. People will seek death, but not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And then he describes the scorpions. In appearance, the locusts were like the locusts. The locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth. They had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails was the har- power to harm people for five months. What in the world is this? Well, Hal Lindsey, in one of his later books, The Apocalypse Code, after the great planet of Earth didn't happen, uh, in The Apocalypse Code, he explains what this is. These are attack helicopters modern attack helicopters, which look like scorpions, kind of, and crowns of gold because the pilots are wearing helmets. Why does they have faces like human faces? Because the pilots are looking through the uh, windscreen, through the through the window. And so you see the face of the pilot, so they got human faces. Hair like women's hair, well, the rotor's going around and it's wispy like hair. And uh, teeth like lion's teeth, there's a six-barrel cannon coming out from the front that looks like teeth. Sound like many horses, this is the thunderous sound of the rotors. This is the explanation then. The author has seen future attack helicopters. It's a clever interpretation. There's no doubt about it. And it completely fails because Lindsay doesn't remember or note what these locusts do. They are not allowed to kill anybody. Their sting doesn't kill anyone. It tortures them for five months and people are desperate to die, but they can't. What kind of attack helicopter doesn't kill anybody? These explanations just don't work when you actually look at the text. And so I recommend looking at the text. What did Lindsay do when none of this actually transpired? Come on, Dana. He was an American. He had can-do spirit. When his original predictions didn't happen, he just came up with another book full of shrill, impending doom that pushed everything back a few years. Subsequent titles included The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. Which assured readers that the rapture would occur that decade. Followed by Planet Earth, 2000 AD. We'll leave it to you to guess the due date of that apocalypse. Which brings us to the promised revelation-influenced weirdness that was so prevalent in the 1990s. As Greer puts it, Long after most Europeans had turned in search of salvation to radical nationalism or Marxism, a very large fraction of Americans still clung to the medieval faith that Christ would return in clouds of glory to inaugurate the millennium in the very near future. This rings true to my experience. It's almost as if for a while there, in the post-World War II era, Revelation had lost power in the face of a purely material, physical, terrifying Armageddon that was hanging over everybody's head in the form of nuclear, mutually assured destruction between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. 
As that threat receded then, the old mystical visions of the apocalypse were able to reassert themselves even as the clock ticked closer and closer to the millennium. For example, returning to Kirsch, he explains that Revelation has also led to very strange political alliances between American fundamentalists and ultra-religious Jews, especially over the last few decades. Early Christian Zionist. That is, person dedicated to the re-establishment of a Jewish homeland in the historical land of Israel. William Eugene Blackstone, starting in the late 19th century, used his fortune and influence to attempt to make Zionism official U.S. policy. And the reason for Blackstone's support of a Jewish homeland is similar to the reason behind modern evangelicals' continued support for Israel. His reading of Revelation suggested to him that the Jews had to return to Palestine before Jesus could return. What many of these folks, Blackstone accepted, tend to soft-pedal is that they believe that all Jews, save for those who accept Christ, are destined to be thrown into the lake of fire for their unbelief. Details, unicorn. Again. Let's not get bogged down in details. These strange bedfellows continue to cuddle in mutual political expediency and theological contempt to this day. And they have shared some rapturous mutual moments over the decades, including a 1996 foofara over the birth of a bright red heifer calf on a farm in northern Israel. As far as we know, the last red heifer who was valid for the mitzvah was 2,000 years ago when the second temple was standing. And maybe uh, the ashes of the red heifer were used for a short time after the destruction of the Second Temple. But since then, uh, the Jewish people have been dispersed all over the world, and they have been uh, lacking their spiritual center. There is a tradition that the, the tenth cow will be brought by the Messiah. Red cow? Who gives a shit? Oh, unicorn. An unblemished red heifer is mentioned in the Book of Numbers, and so this was a clear sign that the Jewish temple would soon be re-established in Jerusalem because there was now a cow that could eventually be the first sacrifice at this new temple, the construction of which would require the destruction of the Dome of the Rock Mosque and probably trigger another world war, but red cow! Red cow. Unfortunately, the cow eventually grew patches of white hair, so all of the Christian tourist buses stopped visiting this bullshit mostly red cow. However, of course, the red heifer mania didn't stop there. For example, back in 2015, an organization in Israel announced their intention to breed a red heifer within that country's own borders. You know, people think that finding a real red heifer is impossible. But the truth is, there are thousands of red cows throughout the world. Go to Google and search for images of red cows and you'll see red Angus in America, you'll see Shetland in the Scottish Highlands, and you'll see red cattle in Norfolk Island, just to mention a few. There are many red cows throughout the world and the challenge is not to find a particular red cow. The challenge is to raise a perfect red heifer according to the exact biblical requirements here in the land of Israel. But it's time to stop waiting and start doing it. The Temple Institute's has embarked upon an unprecedented historical project to raise a herd of red cows here in the land of Israel. Meanwhile, another guy in New Jersey seemed to have his own Garden State candidate. I studied when I was young, two times a year when I was in Cheder. We would study about the coming of the red cow. That's a message that the Mashiach is coming. I've had four rabbis out here come to look at it. They examined it. They said it looked kosher. This is seemingly a para aduma, which is a red cow, a red heifer. 
um, which is spoken about in the Torah, the cow has to be completely red and not have any two black or white hairs which are close together uh, disqualify it from being a kosher. And within the past year, a whole new scheme has seen Christian Texas ranchers send not one, but five of these painted ladies over to the Holy Land. Today on the newscast, five red heifers arrive in Israel. Is this a Bible prophecy breakthrough that helps pave the way for a third temple? These are the red heifers that landed at Israel's Ben-Gurion airport. Rabbis believe the ashes of a red heifer are necessary for purifying priests to serve in a future temple. The heifers were discovered and brought to Israel with the help of the Bonet Israel Building Israel organization and its team leader, Byron Stinson. Rabbis from the Temple Mount Institute approached Stinson about the unique cattle. They said, Byron, could you look in Texas and find us a red heifer? I wasn't expecting that, and it was shocking to me to think about it, but I know a lot of ranchers, and I know a little bit about cattle, being from Texas, and I always say yes to these Jewish rabbis because they're my friends, and I love them, and uh, why not? This began an in-depth process of finding the rare heifer, that meets key stipulations found in the Bible. The Bible Number gives us three, a... is the birth of the red heifer in Jerusalem a sign of the end times? While I'm sure the Jews are happy to work with the Christians on this one and vice versa, we must insist you remember that the rationale for the former is that they need this heifer to sacrifice, burn, and create the ashes that will be used to purify the new Jewish temple to be built at some unspecified yet supposedly near-future time on precisely the plot of land that again is currently occupied by a very holy mosque. This would, of course, presumably require destroying said mosque, which again, would cause some unimaginable, potentially region- or globe-spanning conflict between religious Muslims and Jews. The Christians, meanwhile, only want the Jews to create the Third Temple because that's one of the prerequisites they believe Revelation and other prophecies require before the big guy can make his return. And, of course, as we shall see shortly, the presumed war between Jews and Muslims is A-OK with these Christian loons because that's part of the plan when Jesus comes back to town anyway. Admittedly, though, this inevitable the Christians were right turn of events will, of course, come as a big surprise to those very same Jews who are currently the Christians' partners in this cow-raising, killing, and burning project. As said Jews will, according to said Christians and the Book of Revelation, be given the choice of joining the Jesus team or taking the big permanent vacation in Lake Lava. And the Christians talking about this prophecy are, perhaps surprisingly, pretty straightforward about the situation. To perform animal sacrifices or do the purification ceremony since the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, the sacrifices happened on the Mount of Olives. When Jesus comes back, his second coming, where is he going to place his feet? On the Mount of Olives. So the next question is, why do they want to rebuild the temple? For those Jews that do not believe that Jesus is Messiah. They are still waiting for the Messiah, and they believe they need to rebuild the temple because the temple will be a holy place for God's presence to dwell. Now, those of us that are Christ believers, that believe in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God that came, uh, sacrificed His life, was crucified, died for our sins, and then rose again on the third day. For those of us that believe that, we know that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the next question is, 
are they setting things in place for the rise of the Antichrist? The scriptures do tell us that before Jesus' second coming, the man of lawlessness will come and Why set would up. Why Orthodox in Jews restart Temple Judaism? Well, it's it's actually kind of a, a means to an end. Temple Judaism is, in our opinion, in Christians' opinion, no longer the way that God uses to have a relationship with people. So, for Christians, this whole thing is about, actually, end-time prophecy. You see, end-time prophecy talks about how there will be a functioning temple in the final days. And for there to be a functioning temple, there needs to be a red heifer. That's just part of the system. There has to be a red cow for certain ceremonies for the temple to begin. So Christians don't care so much about temple Judaism. What Christians care about is the return of the Lord. So many Christians are willing to help Jews along the way if they believe it brings about the conditions that we see in end times prophecy. Now I feel a little funny about that. So Perhaps the most rightly famous revelation and year 2000 inflected story that riveted the 90s was the tale of one Vernon Howell and his flock in Waco. Howell, better known as David Koresh, ended up arming his followers because his reading of Revelation indicated the war of good and evil at the end of time was starting soon. And since he had decided that the Messiah had returned in the form of... Who was that again, Unicorn? Uh, one... Vernon Howell. Yeah, convenient that. Anyway, because he was the reborn Messiah, he was uniquely positioned to assure his flock that it just so happened that the seven seals of Revelation were being broken at the same time the ATF descended on their Waco compound. Kirsch notes the FBI even brought in religious scholars to try to argue with Koresh's readings. He was convinced the Branch Davidians, his flock, were prophesied to be slain for the word of God as part of the fifth seal in Revelation. These experts argued that the very next verse noted they should rest yet for a little season, indicating Koresh should give up the siege, stand trial, and then clearly the Bible was saying he could use the exposure and still have time to bring his ministry worldwide, thus having a greater effect. This was the extra law enforcement authorities' plan to end the siege peacefully? The best they could come up with? I guess they were grasping at straws. In the end, Koresh agreed to leave once he finished his preaching on the seventh seals, but wouldn't give an end date. We all know this open-ended, I'll come out when I want to offer didn't work for the feds, and that their impatience, combined with a need to get a win after a number of embarrassing failures like the Ruby Ridge debacle, led to a truly horrific endgame. One of the nine survivors escaped through a hole blasted through the wall by one of the tanks, but it was too late for the people behind him. He later recalled, I could hear some of the ones that were further back into the building behind me screaming. I thought, nobody's getting out of there now. Of the 33 bodies found inside the bunker, 25 were children. A medical examiner told Frontline in 1995, most of them had died as a result of smoke inhalation or suffocation. A couple of them had died as a result of blunt trauma due to collapsing debris. But there were at least three kids who had been shot to death, and one was stabbed to death. 
Outside the bunker, people also died from smoke inhalation, but a few had much easier deaths, including David Koresh himself and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider. Both men were found inside the compound's communication room. Koresh died from a gunshot wound to the forehead, Schneider from a gunshot wound to the mouth. Kirsch notes that, in spite of its centrality, the Book of Revelation doesn't tend to come up a lot when people are talking about the Waco tragedy, but points out, quote, the tragedy would never have taken place and the Branch Davidians would not have come into existence at all, but for the strange power of the book's apocalyptic idea. One final note before we move on to the rest of the 90s apocalypse. A super weird aspect of the Book of Revelation is its obsession with power, with vengeance, and especially with wealth. The Jesus of the Gospels is clearly a man with no possessions, who told aspiring followers to sell all they owned before they could join him. What then are we to make of visions like this one, of the city of God that descends on the earth near the end of the book of Revelation? The city of God appears on earth. The city of God is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven after the destruction of God's enemies. The city of God is enormous. It is 1,500 miles square. So it goes from what? New York to Wichita, Kansas, and from Miami to Montreal. That's the square size of the city. It's made of jasper. Its street is made of gold. The, the, wall, the walls are jasper. The street itself is pure gold with a street of gold, and it is fantastically opulent, more than you can imagine. 1,500 miles of this. Clearly, this is a vision meant to show readers how much greater is the glory of God compared to even Rome's opulent capital, which of course fits in with what Ehrman elsewhere calls a bloody, vengeful book. Sure, it offers a message of hope to John's contemporaries, who were persecuted at the time. But that vision is one of seeing their enemies crushed, while they themselves are suddenly surrounded by unimaginable wealth. And this is supposed to be the triumph of Jesus a man who clearly was opposed both to violence and wealth. It's understandable that John might fervently wish the tables to be turned on his rich, powerful oppressors. But did Jesus want his followers to dominate others, as the book of Revelation prophesies? The whole reason the man's teaching was revolutionary in the Roman context was that it rejected dominance of others as a marker of success, replacing it with the idea of serving and helping the less fortunate, turning the other cheek, etc. The question, as Ehrman poses it, is, would the historical Jesus even recognize the version of him that's depicted in Revelation? Probably not. No, indeed. Which is why, as Kirsch puts it, the book of Revelation is regarded by secular readers as a biblical oddity at best, and at worst, as a kind of petri dish for the breeding of dangerous religious eccentricity. Or to put it even more strongly, he quotes Jewish biblical scholar and translator Robert Alter. There is no other book in either the Old or New Testament so inhuman, so spiritually irresponsible. There is no room for real people in apocalypses, for when a writer chooses to see men as huddled masses waiting to be thrown into sulfurous pits, he hardly needs to look at individual faces. And of course, this obviously leads us, as all things in this series must, to consider QAnon in the light of this violent, bloody, eschatological book. Certainly, like all Armageddon cults, somewhere deep inside the Q-Weltanschauung, there is not simply the desire for the banalities of this current world to be destroyed in blood and fire. But for Q and those who desire the current earth to pass away, the point is not simply for the Lord or Trump or whomever to return and take his rightful place as the ruler of the earth. 
nor is desire for their fellow travelers to be vindicated a sufficient goal. The real thing the Q-Nuts want is to see some heads on pikes. A new federal intelligence report warns that the followers of QAnon could become more violent as the conspiracy theories continue to not come true. Many QAnon followers believe that former President Donald Trump was fighting enemies within the so-called deep state to expose a cabal of Satan-worshipping cannibals operating a child sex trafficking ring. The theory was embraced... January's riot at the Capitol was a turning point for the conspiracy movement QAnon with some followers dropping out, disappointed that the promises of the person behind it, known as Q, haven't come to pass. But others, the FBI says, may become so frustrated they turn more to violence, such as, quote, harming perceived members of the cabal, such as Democrats and other political opposition. The reports Hell, some of them think the first batch of heads have already been mounted. Consider, for example, the widely held QAnon belief that anti-Trump Republican John McCain didn't die from cancer, as reported, but rather was executed for his many crimes via secret military tribunal. Or, if you want to learn what really happened to Bill and Hillary Clinton, those baby-eating traitors, just listen to this guy. President Donald J. Trump is set to reveal that Bill and Hillary Clinton were executed at Guantanamo Bay on charges of high treason, child sex trafficking, and murder. Now, the reason that Donald Trump is getting ready to make this announcement, and he's going to do so through certain back channels, so this will not necessarily be available for complete public consumption, but it will be made available to those of you who are in the alternative media and some of the mainstream media who can be trusted with this information. Here's what happened. There are a couple of news organizations, alternative news organizations, that are providing a story which uh, has just hit the fan within the last couple of days. And I want to begin by reading the story. There is a report going around that U.S. Navy SEALs loyal to Trump raided Hillary Clinton's Chappaqua, New York estate and arrested her on charges of treason, destruction of government property, aiding and abetting the enemy, pedophilia, child sex trafficking, and high treason. The arrest happened allegedly, according to this news story, on this past Tuesday night, according to a source in Trump's orbit, only hours after Trump had spoken to Rear Admiral Hugh W. Howard at U.S. Special Operations Command and given him a mammoth trove of evidence of Clinton's criminality dating back to her days at the State Department. The evidence allegedly includes thousands of never-before-seen emails, which Clinton uh, acid-washed, you know, using bleach bit, prior to the 2016 presidential election, as well as documents implicating her in plots to assassinate Republican legislators across the country. The source said Trump's been wanting to get her and the rest of the deep state cabal ever since he set foot in the White House. It has taken him years to dig up the motherlode. Once he had military support, he greenlit the operation. Trump's team, for lack of a better word, had been surveilling Clinton a long time, and he knew she was always alone on Tuesday nights, that's when the Navy SEALs made a raid on her Chappaqua, New York estate and arrested her. Under the cover of darkness, according to this source, an eight-man detachment from Naval Special Warfare Group 3 infiltrated the Chappaqua mansion shortly after 2 a.m. The SEALs cleared the main building, then silently breached the door to her bedroom, where they found her awake, rehearsing a speech before a vanity mirror. They fired a single tranquilizer dart into her neck, before taping her mouth and sealing a black cloth bag over her head. The SEALs also seized several laptops and reams of paper. 
The source said, I don't know where they took her. Only Trump knows that. But this is proof that Trump and the military have started taking out the cabal. It took him longer than expected, longer than he wanted, but better late than never. Trump is doing what's right for America. Gitmo is currently being run by the United States Marine Corps and the U.S. Navy, both of which have forsaken Joe Biden and instead pledged to help Donald Trump vanquish the forces of darkness that have enshrouded the nation in corruption for decades. Oh, you don't believe him? Well, of course you wouldn't, you mainstream sheeple. But this particular source concluded their story by saying, we are aware that the mainstream media-sponsored so-called fact-checking agencies such as Snopes are challenging the content of this report. Snopes, PolitiFact, Media Bias, and most other so-called fact-checking organizations are controlled wholly by the mainstream media and the liberal left to promote their agenda. Then the story was updated according to the source. Early Friday morning, a Marine escort brought a bound and gagged Clinton to Rybovich Heliport in West Palm Beach, Florida, where the CH-53 sat ready to ferry her to Gitmo. Asked if Trump personally interrogated her prior to the flight, the source was quoted as saying the following. He did not. Trump doesn't want to be within sight of Hillary Clinton. He's letting the military handle everything. He knows that his bias might skew a verdict, and he's totally confident the evidence is compelling enough to secure a conviction. Whatever scant years Clinton has left will be spent in a dark cell if she doesn't face a firing squad. According to this source, Clinton is currently housed in a private cell at Gitmo's Camp Delta, has been assigned the title Detainee 53 and stripped of American citizenship. The source was unable to confirm whether 53 referred to the current number of deep state occupants or if it was just a random number assignment. Clinton's privileges while awaiting the military tribunal would depend on her degree of cooperation. If she behaves, she will get three meals a day and be allowed to shower four times a week. She will also have access to a recreation yard. If, however, she is disobedient, her privileges will be revoked and she will be thrown into solitary confinement until her tribunal date. But the joke's on you. He doesn't need fact checkers because plot twist, he knows the real Hillary wasn't arrested just prior to the 2021 broadcast we're currently listening to. Instead, she had already been dead for years by that point. Buckle up. This story involves body doubles. The story is partially true, but only partially. One of the many doppelgangers, lookalikes, body doubles that have been taking the place of Hillary Clinton since September the 11th of 2016 was the one that was arrested at the Chappaqua, New York estate. This is not the real Hillary Clinton. Both Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were executed on December the 31st of 2018, shortly after being indicted at George H.W. Bush's funeral for these high crimes and misdemeanors, high treason, child sex trafficking, and murder. Trump wants to allow the public to absorb the Clinton's deaths Okay, so this this is what you need to understand. He wants people to be prepared for what they are about to learn. Now, you will recall that on November the 30th, 2018, George Herbert Walker Bush was executed by lethal injection after a brief military tribunal and after a complete confession to the crimes that he committed. At George H.W. Bush's funeral, several members of the deep state were served with indictments, which also included a complete confession by George H.W. Bush. To refresh your memory about exactly what happened, here is what happened at the funeral. 
After Hillary Clinton opened her program brochure at George H.W. Bush's funeral, an envelope fell into her lap. It appears former Vice President Joe Biden also received a similar-looking envelope. All right. That's what happened at the funeral. Indictments were served at George H.W. Bush's funeral. Included in those indictments were this signed confession by George H.W. Bush. They know everything. I'm sorry. George H.W. Bush. Shortly after the funeral, Bill and Hillary Clinton were arrested. They were transported to Guantanamo Bay, where they were given a military tribunal. They were found guilty of the crimes that we have just stated, and they were executed at the time. They were hung by the neck until they were dead. This was already taking place at a time when several doppelgangers had been taking the place of Bill and Hillary Clinton in public appearances. Honestly, we thought we were just going to have a brief excerpt of that guy, but the longer we watched, the better it got. You're welcome. If you found it disturbing to hear someone repeat that bullshit as if it were gospel, Jesuit is requiring me to inform you that it's almost inevitable that somewhere out there, a middle-aged man who lives alone in a depressing apartment finds himself unable to achieve sexual gratification unless he listens to that very audio while pleasuring himself atop a Trump body pillow. God damn it, Jesuit, I have limits. I know, and I'm just dying to find out what they are. But getting back to our point, there's a bloodthirst that Q adherents and Revelation interpreters share. Sure, the storm is coming, and they're going to rescue all of those half-dead kids from Huma Abedin's vampire Jewish torture basement and raise them up to be with Jesus and or Melania. But the most important thing is that Hillary and Barry and Joe are all going to be drawn and quartered by fire-emitting monster trucks in front of a high-dollar stadium crowd, with the pay-per-view profits going to fund a cure for the 5G COVID vaccine. They want the blood, and they want to see, in 4K, the horrified final expressions on the faces of their enemies. As well as their smart-ass grandkids with their goddamn fact-checks and Snopes.com. They yearn for this time when finally every insane thing they ever believed is proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, and all of the unrighteous are cleansed in holy fire. And for the self-righteous, it has always been thus. As Thomas Aquinas promised the faithful, the blessed in the kingdom of heaven will see the punishments of the damned in order that their bliss be more delightful for them. Holy shit, that was a downer way to end that section. You're right. Let's lighten things up with a look of one of the most popular, silliest expressions of Revelation Fever, the Left Behind series. 